You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Massimo Piliucci, it's good to see you again. Great to see you. It has been some time. I know. You've become a very, a very famous man, and it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to, it's hard to get you. Um, um, you're single-handedly reviving stoicism across the world. So I'm having, I'm getting some help from others, but yeah, it's it's been it's been uh, taking a lot of my time recently. That's right. You know, it's all joking aside, though. I mean, I do think you've started something. You know, I'm, you know, as professors, we get books sent to us for free, sort of to either try out in our class. I've gotten already two books on stoicism this year um, by people other than you, and so I guess yep. there's something. Yeah, yeah, brewing. Just just the other day, we had a uh, in, here in New York, we had what we call a Stoicon X, so a mini Stoicon conference, and there were three people: myself, Don Robertson, and Bill Irvine. And it turns out that all three of us have put out new books this this year, just this year. So yeah, there is quite a bit more going on in that in that area. Is there a debate developing within that community, or, or, is it, or is it still pretty much everybody's on the vanguard together, sort of saying, hey, let's do this? Or is it starting to now differentiate within? No, just like any human community, you'll have differentiation and debates. Um, there are so-called, uh, what do they call themselves, uh, traditional Stoics who think that in order to consider yourself a Stoic, you really need to buy also in the, in the Stoic metaphysics and therefore being a pantheist. Um, and, you know, most of us say, no, nah, not really. Uh, you, you can definitely be a Stoic without being a pantheist. And, you know, that's that kind of stuff. There's also some people that are using Stoicism for sort of making money and becoming successful entrepreneurs, which is kind of a distortion of the whole thing because – Stoicism is definitely not about making money. It's about becoming a better human being. I guess that was so, to be you know, expected, though, because they did the same thing with mindfulness meditation, right? I mean, correct. it's become very much a corporate practice yeah, exactly. to try and increase productivity and stuff like exactly. that. Um, well, today we're not here to talk about Stoicism. Um, nope. um, oh, and I am here with, of course, Masmo Piliucci, the K.D. Irani Professor of Philosophy at the City College of the City University of New York, author of How to Be a Stoic, um, an international bestseller translated into multiple languages. And um, have I left anything out? Nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> and I'm uh, Dan Kaufman, professor of philosophy at Missouri State University. Um, uh, this is the Sophia program. Welcome to everyone. Um, Massimo, today we're going to talk about a, an issue that arises in the philosophy of science and has been a major topic of philosophical discussion. Um, almost all the major philosophers of the 20th century uh, who work across these areas have written on this. Um, and that's, that's, uh, what, what's called natural kinds. Yep. And, um, I want to talk about the issue in general. Um, what, what the, what the issues are with respect to natural kinds, then talk about natural kinds in science. And lastly, my ulterior motive is, um, I want to. I want to ask you. I, I want to pick your brain on 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 the question of natural kinds as it as it attaches to contemporary, very fierce debates going on in the area of sex and gender. Um, um, right. uh, because uh, it seems to me that this that this issue is relevant to at least the sex side of the sex gender divide, and so I wanted to see what what your views were on that. Um, so, in um, other words, you want to get me into trouble. 
not at all. all. <laughs> no, not, not at all, actually. I want to keep it relatively narrow on the, just the issue of sex and, and how biologists and people who, who study animals and other things think of this. I'm not, I am not yeah. asking you to weigh in on this debate. You have no idea how little it takes these days to get into trouble. Oh, I have plenty of ideas. <laughs> Your reputation actually matters. Mine doesn't. I mean, mine is shot already. So it's sort of. <laughs> no way. We'll um, do what we do and then we'll see what happens. Yes. Um, okay. So first of all, Massimo, as you understand it, what are natural kinds or at least what are they supposed to be? And what is the philosophical issue with respect to them? Well, that's a good question because, as, as you mentioned, uh, there is actually a lot of disagreement about even 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 when whether natural kinds actually exist in the first place. Um, but I suppose there's an, there's been a fairly large number of philosophies over 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 uh, history and even recently that has supposed that there there are some things out there that that, that there are non-arbitrary ways to, as the the phrase often goes, uh, cut nature at its joints. That is, there are certain things that are about nature that are not just our perception. They're not arbitrary categories. They're not sort of the way human beings make sense of a messy world out there. They really are natural categories. They are things that, that once we recognize them, there's little discussion that they ought to be, that, that they are there. Now, as a general idea, that's, you know, interesting. It's, it's, a, it's an idea really in metaphysics more than in philosophy of science. Although, of course, any philosophy of science has to deal with some kind of underlying metaphysics. Um, it also actually is con- concerned uh, philosophy of mathematics, not just philosophy of science, and a number of other, uh, other uh, areas of philosophy. A number of people have denied that that is the case, um, that um, the, the notion that nature can be curved at its joints is just uh, a human projection. Uh, it's, it's the result of our quest for order and understanding and that it's actually really nothing out there. Nature is what it is. It's a mess of different things uh, that uh, act in different ways and there is no rhyme or reason uh, to it. So, so the question, of course, often uh, uh, hinges about, you know, well, if you claim that there are natural kinds, give me an example, right? Um, and, I mean, I guess one of the most complex Family examples, as far as at least philosophy of science is concerned, of uh, alleged natural kinds are things like like um, the properties of of the, the elements, you know, elemental properties, right? So so atomic number or, or things like that. Um, after all, we have a uh, you know classification of elements, and it seems that that classification of elements based on on uh, atomic numbers and other properties is a natural classification. It looks like it's not built by human beings arbitrarily. It looks like there is an actual progression from helium all the way, you know, from hydrogen and helium all the way to the, to the heavy elements. Uh, there seems to be a structure, and that structure doesn't seem to be imposed by uh, human beings. So that is one of the classic examples of natural kinds. Um, even that one has been subjected to objections, however, because there are, there are now that we know a little bit more than Mendeleev knew about chemistry and physics. Well, as it turns out, there are uh, you know elements actually decay into each other. Uh, you know, uh, things can be stripped of their uh, electrons and then become something else. They become ions, so they can be stripped of their uh, inner core and they decay into a different kind of element. So it's like even there, that seems to be uh, a little bit of a question about. Yeah, but 
isn't this just a you know sort of again a way for us to make sense of of a, what a reality that is actually in a, in the in its underlying sense uh, uh, more complex? So let me ask you. Well, yeah. So so what what would you think about that, or, or do, are you thinking about other examples? Uh, I don't have any. I, I don't want to say what I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to think anything yet because I still want to. Get, <laughs> I want to get the purely exegetical part out of it, yeah. and I do want to sort of go through sciences ending with biology because that's where I'm really interested. Um, right. um, so so to believe in natural kinds, I guess, is a kind is to be a kind of realist, right? Yes. Um, 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 and let me ask you this, because you and I have had, had a number of um, very interesting and, and detailed discussions about realism and anti-realism. Um, are there different issues in the area of realism about natural kinds as opposed to realism in general? So the reason I'm asking is because the what you just described as to whether, you know, there, there's sort of a way that nature is independent of our um, systems of classification, um, or whether um, the, whether our systems of classification are to a certain extent prior, such that one has to adopt some sort of anti-realist or, cons- or constructivist metaphysics, are the issues between those positions pretty much replicated at the level of natural kinds? Are there distinct issues that arise with respect to realism, anti-realism, and constructivism about natural kinds, as far as you're concerned? Um, I can't think of, of specific issues other than the obvious one, which is when we're talking about natural kinds in science, then presumably there is actually a very heavy empirical component to it, like as opposed to, let's say, the, the philosophy of mathematics, right? If we're talking about, uh, you know, the ontology of, of mathematical structures and things like your realism about numbers and, and, and other mathematical structures, it's hard to imagine how would you possibly check that, um, you know, in, in any sort of empirically driven way. But if we're talking about, you know, chemistry or biology, you know, the other obvious example until not that long ago of, of uh, natural kinds comes from biology, species, you know, biological species. Well, we know a lot now uh, in terms empirically about both, you know, elements and how they change into each other and certainly even uh, about biological species. So we can actually take a look, a close look at the empirical evidence and say, yeah, but does that really sound to you like, you know, a, a uh, sort of um, a, a joint of nature or does it sound like a mess? Does it look even empirically like a mess that we're just trying, you know, it's fine to come up with arbitrary categories to make sense of it in terms of sort of human uh, use, but it's not really a reflection of any deep ontology out there, right? And so I think biological species are, are, are an even better example, uh, probably, uh, than, than elements. Because, so the issue with biological species, of course, before Darwin, those were supposed to be, there was assumed to be natural kinds, specifically created individually, by a god, a creator god, right? Right, right. So if we're talking about Linnaeus or if we're talking about any, anybody before, before Darwin, of course, natural, uh, uh, you know, biological species are natural kinds. Um, they are direct creations of, of God. Now, once Darwin came onto the scene, then the debate in biology has been pretty, um, uh, uh, sort of long and, and really uh, convoluted and in some cases even harsh about the nature of biological species. I mean, there are, last time I checked, this was a number of years ago, there were like more than 20 different uh, biological species concepts out there, uh, which right there tells you that, that, that there's something about, that, that constructivism has a good point. Uh, you know, if, if biologists themselves 
cannot agree on what a species actually is, uh, in, even if, you know, if they propose like 20 different de- definitions of it, uh, then it seems like it's hard to get them to agree that there is any, any cutting of, of nature at its joint. Um, my understanding currently as an evolutionary biologist is that uh, the dominant uh, biological species concepts are phylogenetic in nature, uh, which means that they take into account the fact that species, of course, con- change continuously over time. A phylogeny is just a, a you know evolutionary tree, obviously, and that there is no sharp dividing point anywhere along those lines. So what we today call Homo sapiens, uh, you know, our own species, if you go far back enough in time, you will get a situation where it's not clear where Homo sapiens started and whatever came before us uh, yeah. actually ended, right? So there is a there is a continuum. Um, that varies between different taxa. I mean, it's different when you're looking at vertebrates versus insects versus plants versus bacteria. I mean, most people don't even know what to make of the concept of a bacterial species, for instance. They tend to talk about genetic lineages rather than species. Um, don't, don't, seem- don't bacteria and viruses push on the, push on the very idea of, def- of the definition of life itself? Well, especially viruses. I mean, but there's really little uh, doubt that bacteria are alive, and in fact, um, uh, li- the early forms of life were some kind of bacteria. But viruses is much more complicated because viruses, of course, are entirely parasitic on already living organisms. They don't have their uh, their own metabolism. They are parasite on the metabolism of their host, um, and they seem to be evolutionarily derived, meaning they're not primitive um, kind of things. Uh, because they they need so in the beginning they were not viruses. That's right. There were no viruses because viruses need an already existing organism in order to to survive and reproduce. So viruses, yeah, do do push the definition of life itself. Um, but um, but even there, you know, if we're talking about the phylogeny of viruses or of bacteria, there doesn't seem to be any sharp point, any sharp distinction. It's a lot of continuous variation. Um, and moreover, there just doesn't seem to be a single species concept that actually cuts across all of these biological uh, groups, uh, which, again, seems to indicate fairly strongly that at least in biology, you know, or at least when it comes to biological species, uh, these are not natural kinds. Okay, well, well, let's 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 talk about that for a minute, and, and let's talk. You know, use simpler cases first, because it's not clear to me that there has to be sharp demarcations in order to be able to say that there are natural kinds. In other words, one of the things I want to ask you is whether, if there are natural kinds, that indicates some sort of essentialism, which is what you would need to right. make sharp demarcations. But let's go to a simpler example. You know, you know. Are planets natural kind? Is, is, is a planet a natural kind as opposed to, let's say, a satellite or as opposed right. to, let's say, you know, um, um, how do you understand the landscape in terms of the, 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 the other sciences, the more basic sciences, um, where perhaps you don't have the, the sort of bleeding that you have in biology because these things are not undergoing yeah. a, a fundamental sort of change on an ongoing basis, right? Right. Um, um, well, I'll tell you what. I'm still pissed that Plato, that Pluto is not a planet anymore. So I, I still have to recover from that from that <laughs> bit of, uh, of uh, you know. So what is it now universe. classified as if it's not a planet? It's, a it's not planet. a satellite, is it? No, it's a planetoid, whatever the hell that means. <laughs> so, so but, it, but that's a good example, right? So, no, it turns out there are no sharp distinctions even there. For a number of reasons. So, so Pluto is the obvious example. 
so most planets actually orbit uh, around the sun on on a uh, essentially the same plane. The, all the orbits are aligned on the same plane. Pluto is completely off of that plane, which indicates seem to indicate a different origin uh, for the planet. So, or for the planetoid, excuse me. <laughs> um, so, so that's one of the criteria that people use, you know, so it's, it seems to be a, a very different kind of things. There are asteroids that are fairly large, uh, in the asteroid belt, for instance, between Mars and Jupiter. And it's not clear why they wouldn't be planets as opposed to asteroids. It's, it's a continuum of sizes there. Um, there are, there are satellites that orbit around Jupiter or Saturn that are bigger than some planets, or they're about the same size as, as, as some planets. So size there also doesn't seem to be the case. More importantly, or, or more interestingly, I think, uh, some of the, the giant uh, gas planets like Jupiter actually produce more, inter- more energy internally than they receive from the sun which makes them a category somewhere in between stars. A, a star. Oh, yeah, I was exactly. going to ask you about, well, surely stars are a natural kind, but now it sounds like you're saying, uh, <laughs> Right. And also among stars themselves, of course, there are all sorts of different kinds that, have, that are known to have different evolutions. Some stars, uh, you know, depending on their mass and their chemical constitution, end up in a particular way, like, you know, they explode and they eventually collapse and become a black hole. Others just explode and, dissip- and, and sort of dissipate. Other just stay there and shrink a little bit and, and don't do much else. So even there, there seems to be a lot of variation, um, so much so that, yeah, broadly speaking, we don't have much of a trouble telling sort of planets from satellites from stars. Um, but there are, there are definitely intermediate situations that, that make it clear that the, the distinctions between these classes are not, are not sharp. Now, whether that's a problem for, for natural kinds, that's a, you're, you're right. That's a different issue. Um, so are you, you know, earlier, in earlier discussions, you described yourself as a scientific realist. Now, within the philosophy of science, that typically means that one is a realist about theoretical entities. Um, uh, um, but let's, add, let's, let's use the term more broadly. Um, 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 does your scientific realism extend to natural kinds? Are you a realist about natural kinds? And, and if if so, why so? And if not, why not? I don't. You don't need to commit to specific ones, but yeah. just are you inclined to um, think there are, that there really are natural kinds, or not? Not a lot. And in fact, my changing has been my, my thinking has been changing also about um, about realism per se uh, because. So there is an even broader version of realism that says, you know, that has to do with whether there is a mind-independent universe out there. Yes, metaphysical realism. Metaphysical. Now, in that case, in that sense, I definitely consider myself a realist. There's no question. I I, I think that anybody who argues that, you know, the universe is all in our mind and, uh, you know, there is some kind of solipsism or or, uh, uh, idealism, I I don't go for that sort of stuff. I I think that's... uh, um, I mean, it's logically possible, obviously. I mean, as you know, idealism is impossible to refute uh, on, you know, as a, as a formal argument. But I, it just doesn't fit with anything that we know about the universe. Uh, it just seems to, to require it's sort of a, a, a leap of faith almost uh, in, uh, in reconstructing why things then, then look in a certain way. So in that sense, I'm a realist. When it comes to theoretical entities, I'm actually starting to get, to get a little bit more cautious 
Could you say why, even though that's not our topic, because we, you and I have spoken about this before. Right. So I'd be interested to hear why your views have changed about things like quarks or muons yeah. or whatever it is that... Well, because the more you study the history of science, the more you realize that those things, you know, those, those theoretical entities we're talking about actually change sometimes dramatically. Um, and, and even when, they, when scientists use the same name for a particular theoretical construct, they actually don't refer to the same thing. The obvious example is mass. Right? So mass, even though both Newton and Einstein talk about mass, what they mean with that concept, it's to- completely different. It has nothing to do with, with a child. You know, so, 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 and it's changing even more now with the discovery of, of the, the Higgs boson, and, you know, which is the particle that allegedly gives mass to other particles. It's like this is a very different concept, theoretically speaking, from what Einstein and certainly from what Newton uh, were, were thinking about. Uh, if, so, so if physicists, if fundamental physicists change that dramatically, their, their theoretical sort of uh, concepts over a period of just a couple of hundred years or less, um, then I'm beginning to have doubts about the stability of such theoretical entities, right? Um, so it turns, you know, it could very easily turn out that quarks are actually made of something else or are, are actually really a different kind of thing, you know, super strength, whatever. Um, and, and so we're going to change our mind in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years time about what those theoretical entities actually mean. So are you, I am a, are now, you towards a sort of a von Frossen-y kind of view on, on this? Not or do you have a, quite. Different, a different version of it that you prefer? Yeah, so not quite. So I tend to be a little bit more cautious and a little bit more agnostic about theoretical entities. Van Frassen, uh, who is a you know anti-realist for par excellence, he's the, he's the most famous example right. of an anti-realist about about theoretical entities. So that's why I'm right. using him. Yeah. Right. So he's he's got problems of its own, right? I mean, the anti-realist position has problems of its own. Uh, for instance, uh, among the most famous ones is is the so-called uh, miracle argument that that if if in fact uh, uh, science deals only with you know empirically adequate. Uh, uh, Constructions that how is it that we we're so damn successful about discovering new stuff and so the eff- so, efficacy problem I mean right yeah right yeah, yeah so the efficacy problem I think is a real problem um, but by the same token uh, since I'm a I'm definitely not a realist in terms of mathematics and the the efficacy problem comes turns up there as well right because mathematical realists will say hey isn't it a miracle that mathematics works so well and i don't think it is a miracle i think there are other explanations there for for why mathematics uh, occasionally turned out to be uh, to work so well in the physical world uh, so so i don't want to say that 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 problem in and of itself is sufficient uh, to 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 back up the realist um, position so right now where i find myself is kind of in an awkward situation i see the power of some realist arguments I see the power of some anti-realist arguments, and I tend to be agnostic uh, and, and fairly cautious about committing to specific uh, instances. Um, if you ask me, you know, are biological species, you know, real? I would say, well, let's talk about what what do you mean by real? Um, well, so, so what is your inclination? So, if you had to, if you're talking to a, a bunch of students in a class, and and you had to sort of say, okay. This is how I'm inclined sort of to think about, let's say, theoretical entities in physics, you know, super subatomic particles, stuff like that. What, what, how, 
how would you describe yourself at this point? I mean, because you could just sort of be sort of a quietist, right? right. But that's sort of a no comment view. But but I don't right. think that's probably not what you would say, right? To a student. No, I, I if I have to pick, pick up a term, I would consider myself a quasi realist, meaning that I do think that there is something behind what we call electrons, quarks, and so on and so forth. I do think that there is an ultimate concept of, of something, of, of whatever physical entities lie behind these things. I am not sure that where we are right now, however, is in fact it, that, that the current physics has actually gotten to that point. I'm not even sure that it would ever get to that point. I mean, I'm not overly optimistic necessarily about fundamental physics, uh, especially given the mess that the field is in <laughs> at the moment uh, when it comes to, you know, uh, for instance, this whole discussion about so-called post-empirical science. Uh, yeah, we've how, talked about that. That's right. And how, yeah. Yeah, how to yeah. test theories, you know, without without empirical support. So it's like, whoa. Well, but the so, question is how, you know, it's not just that we're not there yet, but my question would then be, well, how would you know when you were? In other words, you know, uh, um, yeah. um, in other words, I don't see how, it seems like a very precarious position to be in, right? Because, you could be saying, look, I do think ultimately, I'm ultimately a realist about theoretical entities. I just don't think we've gotten the right theoretical entities yet. Right. But then the question would be, well, how would you know when you had the right theoretical entities, given that yeah. you could always reflect on the history and say, well, this could just all change again. Right. You know? No, that, that's a very good question, and I don't even answer for it. I, I don't think that we would know necessarily. I mean, Sure, if you listen to some fundamental physicists, they would say that at some point they'll get to the what they refer to as rather grand, grandiosely as uh, uh, ultimate theory of everything, right? Um, by that, what they mean is a theory that accounts uh, in, in, from first principles for all of the basic uh, constants of nature, uh, right? All, all of why the electron has the charge that it has, why the proton has the mass that it has, et cetera, et cetera. Should we ever get to something like that? Okay, at that point, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, yeah, I, I feel convinced that we got to that point, but to, to, to the end of the line. But I'm not sure that we will ever get to that point because even if we, so I don't even know what that would look like. And this may just be my ignorance of fundamental physics. You know, as you know, I'm a philosopher of biology, not of physics. Yeah, I know. So, uh, and I don't, even, I don't even play one on television. So, um, so, so you know, there's no reason for me to be particularly sort of confident one way, one way or the other. But I don't know. I can't imagine what a final theory of everything will look like because it seems to me always possible to ask the additional question of, yeah, but why that way and not otherwise, right? Um, so... And if you can ask that question, then it seems to me to indicate that you have not actually gotten to the bottom of it. Yeah. Uh, that there, there's something else that could be done. Um, and, you know, I like, I really love to hear a physicist about, you know, what, what they have to say to, to that question. Uh, possibly one of those physicists who don't have a knee-jerk reaction against uh, philosophy and say, oh, that's just for philosophers. No, it isn't. Yeah. The moment you decide as a scientist that you, that you are in the business of providing of getting to to a ultimate theory that explains all of reality then now you're really into philosophical territory so it seems to me that you do owe an answer to the philosopher yeah. is there anything is there any counterpart in biology to theoretical entities and physicists are, are there things that are purely positive in biology because they are in principle unobservable once once you get sort of microscopically enough so to speak um because aren't we no. learning more and more about the sub-constituents of the smallest parts? And eventually, right. I'm assuming you're getting to a point to where 
even technology right, was not, is, does not render these things observable. Is, is there a, a similar use of theoretical positing in biology? No, genetics not or really. Anything? Yeah, not really. I mean, gene would be the other obvious uh, example for a natural kind, and that one is also out uh, because gene, the word gene refers to a bunch of different things uh, and even a bunch of different levels of analysis. A Mendelian gene is something that you don't actually see uh, you only see the results of it, the, the, you know, what, what biologists call the phenotypic outcome of it, that, that is the, the, the effect on so that would be like a, That would be like a subatomic particle then, because that's the way physicists detect them. Right. And, right. and do, do biologists tend to be realists about those? or Not anymore, because, because so, so then we get into the 1950s with the discovery of the structure of DNA, and people thought, ah, that's what Mendelian genes are made of. Uh, <laughs> but then, of course, the explosion of molecular biology uh, meant that we don't really, we have a, we, we now ref, use the word gene to refer to a number of different things. Genes can be pieces of DNA that code for proteins. He, uh, they can be pieces of DNA, very small pieces of DNA that actually alter the way in which other pieces of DNA are transcribed into proteins. They can have structural properties when, inside the cell. There's all sorts of, and then of course to complicate things even matter, there's so-called epigenes. These are epigenetic uh, particles that are not genes, but yet are inherited. Uh, at least in some species from one generation to another, they do have phenotypic effect. So the whole thing, anybody these days who claims that genes is something that we understood and, and we, we got a good handle of it and it's one kind of thing, it's just diluted. No, no serious biologists would do that. Do you so that one also gonna, is out of the time. Do you think that's going to change as much as our fundamental physics has changed? I'm, I'm, what I'm wondering is, if, you know, if you think about from Newton to Einstein, right? Yeah. Or from Newton to quantum mechanics, it is a completely transformed view, right, of the yep. world. Is something similar you think going to happen in biology? We're, we're, we're just going to have a completely fundamentally different paradigm that's going to come along? I doubt it. Now, of course, never bet on the future because, you know, never see Yeah, no, I'm not asking for that kind of a prediction. But. <laughs> so I don't, I don't have – I forgot it, my, my crystal ball in my office, so it's like I'm not going to make a prediction. But, no, I don't think so. And, in fact, um, I actually wrote a, a paper about the fact that, unlike other disciplines, particularly physics, in biology we have never seen anything like a Kuhnian paradigm shift since Darwin. Oh, that's and, interesting. You yeah. just have a there are, published on this? Yeah, I published a we'll have to ago, actually. I'll, I'll send, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, send yeah. the link. And uh, so if you go through the history of biology since Darwin, what you see is an expansion of Darwinian ideas. It's a modification of Darwinian ideas for sure. It's a different emphasis on different aspects of literature on Darwinism, but you don't see anything that is radically sort of qualitatively different. So you see a, a continuous expansion of, of concepts and addition of things and a, and a change of emphasis. Um, and that's been going on now for quite some time since Darwin published uh, his original paper with Wallace in 1858. Still, biology is a, is a comparatively young discipline, you know, compared to physics, so you never know. Yeah. But I would be really stunned if one of these days somebody came up and said, no, you know what? Let's throw the whole thing out because there's a completely different way of understanding uh, biology. You know, this is, this is off the subject, obviously, but now it's making me wonder, could you, in a sense say a lot about the differences between physics and biology as sciences on the grounds that the former seems sub subject to Kuhnian type paradigm shifts and the latter does not, that the sort of a basic distinction that allows you to distinguish them as sciences in a sort of yeah. a fundamental way. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, 
I'm tempted to do that, um, and I'm, I, I would be tempted to do that in terms of making a distinction between historical and non-historical sciences, right? So physics and chemistry are obviously non-historical sciences. An electron is an electron. It doesn't matter where it's been uh, over the last 13 billion years. It's still an electron. A living organism, on the other hand, by definition, it's just like by its nature, it very much matters where it's been recently and even when there, its ancestors have been. Yeah. But then there are other historical sciences for instance, geology, where there have been paradigm shifts, right? The, the, oh, the is, whole, that, is that the case? Well, I mean, I count the, the whole continental drift thing in geology as a paradigm shift. I mean, th- that changed, changed completely the way in which geologists looked at their, at, at their discipline. So now it, it begins to look like it's not a matter of historical versus non-historical sciences. It may very well be that biology is its own special, special thing. And then if you go to, to social sciences, it's a mess, yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. Psychology has been through what four or five different major theories throughout the 20th century. Yeah, and they still haven't settled on anything. Yeah, uh, you know, particularly promising. So. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I, I was just thinking of um, um, Jerry Fodor, the late Jerry Fodor. <coughs> excuse me. Famously, had an even narrower conception of science than you, that has to do with things like covering laws and stuff like that, and and. He he was inclined to say that you know that biology is essentially natural history, um, yeah. um, and I was wondering whether what you were saying is somewhere maybe a lighter version of his yeah. maybe too extreme version. No, um, I wouldn't go that far because natural history to me uh, means just a sort of essentially descriptive discipline where there is no underlying structure, there is no underlying theory. I completely disagree with Fodor. Uh, yeah. In fact, I. I Published a really negative review yes, uh, yes. in Nature of uh, of Fodor's uh, What's Wrong with That? What was it? Yeah, Wrong with Darwin or something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, yeah. because and and yes, you're right. The difference there does go uh, does hinge on how we think about uh, covert laws and things like that. Yeah. But no, I think that that Fodor there, you know, with all due respect, because I did have a lot of respect for Fodor. Yeah. I mean, that one you, you really did get it wrong. That there is a, an underlying structure theory. A theoretical structure in biology, which makes it very different from natural science. Yeah. If yeah. anything, psychology and sociology count to me as natural science at the moment, uh, 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 natural history at the moment, because they tend to be descriptive. Yeah. And every attempt that has yeah. been made so far to, to to move away from a purely descriptive, so I'm thinking, you know, Freudian psychoanalysis first, or behaviorism next, or evolutionary psychology now, they have all not worked particularly well. Yeah. And so I still think now, whether that is because psychology hasn't gotten there yet, and you know they're they're still waiting for their Darwin, that's possible. It's also possible that psychology is just a different kind of beast. Yeah, um, where it's, where Fodor actually turns out to be right that you're there. There is no there is no way to move. It's, it's, it's ironic that Fodor thought that folk psychological explanations could be taken as a species of causal explanation, but he thought biological explanations ultimately were non-explanatory and thus exactly. essentially a form. Of, it's ironic, and I do think part of it has to do with the period, right? I mean, he's he was. He was educated in a period which still had a lot of Hempel, Hempel's sort of uh, yeah. overarching influence, I think, that he right. never was able to quite shed. Um, um, and I noticed that even when I was in graduate school, he was a professor of mine. Um, so let, I'm back on natural kinds. So it sounds to me like you're saying, are you, are, is your attitude towards natural kinds similar to your realism about theoretical entities? And that is that you're sort of agnostic, ambivalent, not ready to be an anti-realist, but not ready to take stake out a strong realist position? Um, it's, 
it's similar to that, but I'm a little bit more skeptical of natural kind than kinds than I have than I am of general realism. So while I do think that it's possible that physicists will get to the bottom of things and that some of their, of their, of their theoretical entities at some point will be the end of the line. Um, and so we can, we can think of them as real in a sense. Um, in, ca- in the case of, uh, of um, natural kinds, my attitude is more one of, okay, if you think you've got good examples, let's hear it. And, and then we'll talk about it on a case by case basis. And the more I, uh, hear about examples that have been thrown around, the more skeptical I become about the whole thing about natural, natural kinds. Okay. But there, the interesting issue becomes one, the one that you brought up a few minutes ago, which is, well, do we need to have sharp categories, sharp distinctions, right, in order to have natural kinds or not? I guess my, I mean, I want to hear what you, what you think about it, but my initial inclination is, yes, you do, because if you don't, then all of a sudden, we're sliding into what exactly? If we're saying that, well, biological species are natural kinds, even though there is no solution of continuity between species that they, just grade into one, one to each other, into the other, then, then, then in what sense are they natural kinds? Um, yeah, you know, I, I guess, you know, so what I was going to ask you was, is the is the is your view that there are not or is your skepticism about natural kinds essentially reducible to a skepticism about there being essential properties, right? right. Um, um, because your point about demarcation would seem yeah. to suggest that you need there to be sort of essential properties in order for there to be natural kinds. But you know, it's worth stepping back for a second. There doesn't need to be essential properties for there to be kinds, right? Yes. Right, right. So why should there have to, in other words, things can constitute a kind, even if the boundary lines between that kind and another kind is porous, right? Um, um, even on a Wittgensteinian family resemblances view, you could argue that there are kinds. It's just that the boundaries between them are fuzzy, and the way you identify a kind does involve in part an act of judgment, right? Um, whether executably similar to the things that are the paradigmatic cases. Is. So if it's possible to have kinds without essential properties, why wouldn't it be possible to have natural kinds without essential properties? Right. So, so let, let's go back to Wittgenstein in a minute. But before we go there, um, I want to go back to the essentialist stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have some colleagues of mine, I should not name, name names, who I think are doing and making some very bizarre moves and arguing. In for philosophy, instance, no. I know, right? <laughs> that, is, that has never happened before. Uh, so, so for instance, I have a particular person in mind um, that has been arguing now in print for, for a number of years that essences don't need to be essential. They don't need to be sharp. They, 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 they can be, you know, sort of a, a continuum kind of thing. I, I want to say, well, why do you call them essences at that point? <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, sure, you can, you can recover the notion of essence by essentially giving up the notion of essence. It's like, fine, <laughs> but why are you making that move? And so I'm, I'm kind of suspicious of the move essentially that you're just, just suggesting and on similar ground. That is, um, well, can we have kinds without sharp borders? Um, maybe, but then what would you call them kinds? 
so now it's time. Let me go back to Wittgenstein. So the Wittgenstein, uh, Wittgensteinian approach is, is perfect in that sense. Are there such things as games? Sure. Even though Wittgenstein argued rightly that there is no sharp distinction anywhere. There is no single thread that connects everything, every activity that we call game. But that's a perfect example of an anti-essentialist and, and, and I think anti-kind uh, kind you know, sort of approach because it's like, well, no kidding. We invented all of those categories. So yes, we can arbitrarily refer to golf as a sport, but then somebody else may, like Mark Twain may come up and say, no, that's actually a good walk spoiled. Uh, it's not a sport because you can play while drinking beer or something like that. And, and then we have any agreement that we're going to have on what counts as a sport or as a game or anything else is going to come down to a matter of language use, just like Wittgenstein said, right? It's not like we can actually, on the basis of empirical observation, say, oh, yeah, there it is. Anybody without a preconceived notion of what games are will arrive at that same classification. Right. I don't think that's the case. Right. So now the question is, are, there, you know, are, are all the cases of natural kinds of that type or not? I am skeptical but agnostic. I'm willing to be I'm, – I'm happy to be convinced otherwise. And that's why whenever these conversations come up, um, I say, well, okay, so let's talk about specifics. What, what's a good example of a kind that is not based on essential properties? Yeah, I mean, I guess – look, I mean, I guess you could just say I refuse to use the word kinds, right? Mm-hmm. But – it's very natural to say that, you know, a, a porch is a different kind of thing than a, than a basement, right? Sure. And, and, and so I, I guess I'm reluctant to sort of, um, maybe I'm a reluctant to be that philosophically rigorous, right? I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I don't know how else to describe, I mean, how else do I describe the difference between porches and basements? Yeah. If I don't in some way say, well, they're different kinds of things, right? I mean, porches are things that you... That, sure. Yeah. sure, but if you use the word kind in a sort of uh, uh, you know, non-metaphysically heavy uh, sort of, uh, meaning sense, then sure, colloquially, the two of us can refer to chairs as one kind of furniture and tables as a different kind of furniture. Absolutely. But do you think that, do you think that, that we need more than that? I mean, I guess, I guess I've always thought that because of Wittgenstein, I've always thought that the idea that somehow the only way we can sort of divide things up in the world, and 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 now let's forget about realism for a minute. I mean, just sure. just for a second. I mean, in terms of mind independence, yeah. um, um, I've always thought just because of, because of Wittgenstein that the notion that we that we need essences in order to be able to divide to divide the things in the world up into discrete categories is just a mistake, right? Um, 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 yeah, I, I would agree. But if that's the case, then in what sense are we talking about natural kinds? No, we're not I mean, talking about natural kinds. Yeah. I was just sort of wanting to sort right. of say, okay, are there kinds at all? Do kinds at all require in, – in order for there to be kinds at all, does there have to be essences? And so if the answer is no, then, then the question becomes, well, why do there have to be essences in order to be natural kinds? Why can't natural kinds – be like other kinds of kinds. That is, yes, there's an element of conventionality to them in the sense that um, 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 there are going to be borderline cases that require active judgment on the grounds of sufficient similarity, right? Um, yes. But that's not to say that there aren't kinds, right? Um, right. But it, I, I guess the move that I'm going to resist is the, the um, um, 
the one you just made, which is an equivalency or a similarity between kinds, as in different kinds of games or furniture, and natural kinds. Yeah. Um, I, I guess I'm going to resist that one. I'm going to say that if we want to meaningfully talk about natural kinds, it's, it's got to be something to do with essences or something to do with sharp categories. Because if not, I see. Then I don't really know where I'm going to draw a distinction, and my way of doing drawing a distinction is going to be different from yours. Now, here's a radical approach that would militate against natural kind, the existence of natural kinds. So, yes, the two of us as human beings, as human observers can somewhat easily agree that the sun is a star and earth is a planet. We can also agree that, you know, Pluto is more similar to a planet, let's say, than, than a star and so on and so forth. Right. But if physicists, if fundamental physicists are right, the entire universe is simply, and I use the word simply in sort of scare quotes here, is simply the manifestation of, let's say, a, a universal, uh, you know, quantum wave. Right, so it's 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 one thing, and if it is one thing, then the fact that we perceive it uh, at different times and different places as discrete objects—that's in a sense a function of our position as human observers. It doesn't reflect anything fundamental about nature. The only thing that is fundamental about nature is the wave function. I'm of course assuming that one particular version of quantum mechanics is the right one, but just for for the sake of argument, right? Um, even if that's not the, the one, that there are others that essentially brings you to similar, similar yeah. things. I mean, you can say, uh, let's say the string theory is correct, for instance. Uh, uh, not that I'm a partisan of string theory, but let's say it is, again, for the sake of argument. Well, then it turns out that everything that we see is so different and so, and so varied in the world is actually just one fundamental kind of thing. Yeah. Strings, right? Vibrating at different frequencies. And that's all it keeps, and that's what really all there is. The rest is a matter of contingent interaction between certain other certain entities like us, um, you know, characterized by certain senses and certain ways of thinking and all that sort of stuff. If that's true, I, it seems to me that's, a, that's an argument from fundamental physics against the existence of natural kinds. But that does presume a very strong ontological reductionism, which I would be inclined to resist, right? Um, um, yeah. Um, and part of the whole idea of the anti-reductionist view is to argue that, you know, that, that, that the kinds that the various sciences talk about are somewhat to a certain extent, ontologically independent of one another. Um, um, for example, the idea that psychological kinds are intrinsically physically heterogeneous, right? Right. But I was, but I was going to say, so even if you reject uh, uh, a strong ontological reductionism, you really, your rejection really has, it seems to me, power, it has it has an interesting aspect only when it comes to mental stuff, only when it comes to so, sort of the, the ontological status of concepts, for instance, or ideas or things like that. We talked about this in the, in the past, and, and as, you know, I, I do agree that those are you know interestingly problematic. But you wouldn't say that it's not true that planets are made of. Ultimately, no, 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 certainly not. Like I thought you said. I thought that you had in previous dialogue said that there are that there are actually significant problems in a strong ontological reduction of biological types. 
Um, um, and even you said, even in chemistry, there, there, people have been pointing out that there's difficulties with a, a, a strong ontological reductionism. Well, so what, what I think there is, is an issue of, we don't know how to go from, to have a, uh, we have no idea, even the strong fundamental, uh, you know, reductionists, uh, they, they only do a lot of hand waving when you ask them, okay, so how do you reduce, you know, biological species of quarks? Uh, and they do a lot of this. It's all in principle. Well, what's the principle here? Um, it's like, oh, I don't know. Um, but it is certainly the case that that everything that is physical is made of un- ultimately the same kind of stuff. The question, the real question, the really interesting question, I think, is how is it that that if everything is made of the same kind of stuff, you do see qualitatively different properties? of some of this stuff when it gets to certain levels of complexity, right? So it's a problem of emergent properties. Which we've right? discussed, yeah. Right, and, right. And, that's and then when I'm still on board... Nobody knows yeah. how to cash that out. No, nobody knows that. And anybody who's, who just dismisses it as a, you know, oh, that's just a philosophy talk, it just uh, either doesn't understand or it's in bad faith. Um, that is a real problem. We, know, we don't know how emergent properties... And I'm not talking... I'm not even making the assumption that emergent properties are strong emer- instances of strong emergence. Even weak emergence. Yeah. yeah, and then it will be weak emergence, you know, whatever. The question is, can you please give me a detailed explanation of how you get from strings, quarks, or whatever it is, the fundamental stuff of matter, to the two of us talking about abstract concepts? Nobody has any clue of how to do that. So in that sense, I'm not a strong reductionist. But I certainly agree that the two of us and the computer that I'm looking at uh, and, and so on and so forth, they are, we are all, in fact, made of the same fundamental stuff. Okay. So there is a distinction between stuff and properties. Okay. That's, yeah. I guess that's what I'm getting. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so let me, let me ask you to pose two questions about – anti-realism about natural kinds and then I will um, and then let's talk about the last thing which has to do with specifically in biology and the concept of biological sex okay. so he, he, there's two things that I, I thought um, would be a real problem if you are an anti-realist about natural kinds okay the first has to do with scientific laws yeah um, so if you know the reductionism literature, what you know, the traditional idea of reduction that goes back to Ernest Nagel's structure of science is the idea that um, when we do a reduction, um, we reduce the laws of one science to the laws of another and doing so involves um, the the creating bridge laws between the natural kinds of one science and the natural kinds of another the idea being that what scientific laws consist of are relations between natural kinds. Now, I guess without there being natural kinds, can we, can we even, can we even make the sense of the idea of a scientific law or are you happy to be done with scientific laws? I mean, that's another way to sort of go. I'm, I'm happy to be done with scientific okay, laws. Okay, so but you say something about that a little <laughs> sure, bit. Sure, sure. Um, no, yeah. So as you know, there, there are some philosophers who actually got there. Nancy Cartwright, for instance, uh, in why the laws of physics are wrong, uh, or lies, actually, I think it's... Lies? Did you say lies? Yeah, lies, yeah, lies. <laughs> um, that's, a, that's a great book. I mean, it's very very controversial, even within philosophy, but it's a great book. Uh, or Ian Hacking uh, has come up with similar uh, similar positions uh, already back in the, I think, 80s or early 90s. Uh, 
But in fact, I discovered recently, like, well, not that recently, time flies, my friend. Uh, a couple of years ago, there was somebody who gave a seminar here at, uh, at Locum here at the Jardim Center. And uh, he was talking about the origin, the hist- historical origin of the concept of laws of nature. Right? And I had no idea up until that point that there was a big discussion going on for initially among physicists. Uh, while Newton was perfectly happy to, uh, to use the term laws of nature because he really did think that the laws were given by a lawgiver. Right. right? It, was, it was God that was putting yes, that, right. this stuff yeah. out there. Galileo, before Newton, was very uncomfortable with this whole thing, and he tried not to talk about laws of nature. He, ta- he talked about empirical generalizations which is interestingly the way in which Nancy Cartwright uh, talks about uh, natural laws. So natural laws, just as empirical generalizations, what a natural law is, is, well, we tend to see that things uh, under similar conditions, things happen in a similar way, and we call that a law. And it's exceptionless as far as we know. But that doesn't mean that there are actual laws, meaning that doesn't mean that there are no exceptions. It doesn't mean that there were always if, you know, uh, um, in, in place. Some modern physicists also go there. Lee Smolin, for instance, has suggested that even some uh, areas of, of general, like general relativity, for instance, they may better break down at very large cosmological uh, scales. Whether he's right or not, uh, it's not the point. The point is, here we have a theoretical physicist who is actually skeptical of the notion of natural laws. More interestingly, Smolin uh, co-published a book a few years ago on... on the nature of time uh, with a philosopher. And, and the, the, one of the arguments that we're putting forth is that, look, what's really fundamental are not laws, but causal interactions among whatever it is that makes up the world. And that what we call laws are these regularities that come out, that emerge out of the, the causal interactions, which we don't actually understand. And his, his point was, those, the nature of those causal, there is nothing that prohibits those causal interactions from changing qualitatively over time. We have no idea if whatever it is that was before the Big Bang worked by the same laws, uh, that is, by the same empirical generalization as whatever happened after the Big Bang. Now, all of this is highly speculative, but the point is that there is a way to cash out the concept of law of nature without laws. You can just think of them without without talking about laws. You can just think of them as highly reliable empirical generalizations. Of sufficient generality. I mean, the way that Fodor, part of the reason that Fodor was very conservative about what he was willing to extend the term science to was because he thought that the laws of whatever the science were had to be sufficiently general um, to be to to count in a sense, um, but I guess what I'm asking in this, you know, regardless of whether you call them a law, okay, um, do not the relata in those generalizations have to be natural kinds? Because otherwise, couldn't you, in a sense, come up with infinitely many generalizations between relata, right? Yeah. But you wouldn't want to call them all laws, right? I mean, I mean, the point is, is that. The law, the laws have a kind. Of, I don't want to say they have a kind of a normativity to them, but they do <laughs> have. They do have a yeah. kind of force, right? That that um 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 seems to presume that they don't just describe a lot of between conventionally char- uh, described groupings of things, sure. right? But the question is, how many laws of nature are there exactly? And I don't know. I just to, remember I had to remember a lot of them in high school physics, and I right. remember them all. But I mean, I'm assuming there's even more than that, right? Right, but um, but make a. But think about it this way. So, so think. So, on the one hand, in physics, actually, the 
the trend has been toward collapsing some of these mm. generalizations, right? So, so one of the, the trends in 20th century physics has been that, oh, hey, it turns out that we thought that electricity and magnetism were completely different things and each one with its own laws. But in fact, there are two aspects of a single underlying thing called electromagnetism, which has its own its laws that explain the emergence of the other two. Oh, emergence. I use the word emergence again. <laughs> so, so there seems to be this trend in fundamental physics to basically reduce everything to one law. They haven't gone in there yet. They're, in fact, they're pretty far. But that seems to be the trend. Right? I mean, that what physicists want, physicists like Steven Weinberg, let's say, want is one equation that describes everything, right? That would be one law, right? One kind of generalization that describes everything. Are they going to get there or not? I don't know. But that's the trend. Go the other way, get to biology, for instance. In biology, it's a constant discussion, especially in ecology and evolutionary biology. About whether there are, are laws there, Yeah, are there laws in biology? Well, lots of people have suggested that there are laws in biology uh, that have to do, for instance, with metabolic relations. Like there is a, there is a relation, pretty clear relationship between the surface and the volume of an organism, right? That, that really uh, has to do with the way the metabolism works. And, but ultimately, it comes down to a geometrical relationship. Um, you know, if you if you double the surface, then of course you're gonna, uh, you know, increase the the the, um, the volume by the cube, not not by the by the square. So that has all sorts of very predictable, very clear implications for the metabolism of living organisms, for scaling up metabolism uh, from bacteria all the way to uh, you know uh, sequoias and so on and so forth. Now, some people would be arguing that, that those are biological laws, the scaling laws are biological laws. Others say, no, that's actually just a straightforward result of chemistry. Others say, no, it's a straightforward result of geometry. <laughs> um, okay, there are this, it, it's still under debate. And to me, part of that debate has to do with these two fundamental issues. One, can we reduce an alleged law to a more underlying one? So the scaling laws in biology, are they actually the result of, you know, essentially manifestations of chemistry? Or are they the result of manifestation even of geometry? Yes, no, maybe. Um, and on the other hand, it has to do with how generalizable these laws are. Right? So in biology, the, the only law seems to be that there's always exceptions. No matter what, what kind of generalizations you come up with, you, somebody's going to eventually come up with an exception. Um, so does it count as a law if it describes a general behavior of biological organisms with high reliability, and yet there are exceptions? A physicist would say no. But a biologist would say, well, why not? That's, it's pretty good. It works pretty well for in, in most cases, right? So, you know, so for instance, one of the, class, the classic examples of that kind of law is the, it comes from island biogeography, where there are uh, very reliable regularities that tell you things like, you know, the number of, that, that uh, you can predict the number of species on an island based on just two parameters, the distance of the island from mainland uh, and the, su- the size of the island. And that really, yes. really? Yeah, and that works pretty damn well. There that are exceptions. Incre- that's quite incredible. There are exceptions, but it works pretty damn well. Why does it work well? Well, because uh, the closer you are to mainland, the more likely it is that a species is going to be able to colonize from the island from mainland. And the larger the island is, the more large number of niches it may be able to host the more diverse the environment is and therefore the more number of species. So that law is pretty damn reliable, but there are exceptions. And so it's like, now what do I do with that? 
Right. Yeah. I listen, I assume that if there are laws they're gonna have exceptions. I mean, because even the laws of physics, it seems to me, have have exceptions. Um 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 but it sounds to me though like you're saying that there's a sort of an in between space you'd like to occupy. So you you want to reject the idea that let's just call them laws, but we're what we're talking about are sort of, you know, highly reliable generalizations of a suitable generality. Okay, let's just call them that, right? Yeah. Um you want to say that you know you're you're not you don't want to hold the strong view that the relata in these generalizations have to be natural kinds, right. but on the other hand, you also don't seem to want to be saying that well the relata can be any conventional grouping of things that you can find correlations between, right? right. So, do you have any way of characterizing the in between ground you want to stake? Uh, well. I'm not sure that I want to give it a name, if that's what I mean by characterized, but, 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 um. They're not entirely conventional and they're not natural, so then how should we? Well, rem- well, remember that I'm a realist about the ultimate nature of the universe, right? I think that there is a universe out there that's right. made of, of actual stuff, right. right? So if that's the case, then it stands to reason that the universe works in a certain way. There are, there are certain, you know, causal relations among whatever it is that make up this universe that result in the phenomena that we observe. So I don't want to say that it's all a matter of convention because otherwise I would have to say that we have no access whatsoever to the ultimate reality or that there is no ultimate reality, perhaps. And I, I definitely don't want to go there. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want I don't want I don't want to fight you forever on this, but I mean, it does, <laughs> it does seem to me though that, you know, you're, you're painting yourself into a pretty tough spot because look, that sounds to me like what you're saying is, well, there is an actual way the world is, which means that it does actually consist of natural kinds. It's just that we don't know what they are yet, and we might never be able to find out, is what it sounds like you're saying, right? Uh, well, if the natural kind turns out to be just the, the, the wave function, okay, we want to call that a natural kind? You're saying, you're saying there's a way it is, but it could be such a way that – doesn't break into the kinds the way we normally think of them. Exactly. Right. It's going to be exactly. shit about energy and, and yeah, right. Uh, I right. see. Okay. Also now, if we really want to go far out into, into who knows where land, um, I am still kind of, uh, intrigued. I don't buy it, but I'm tr- intrigued by this book that came out a number of years ago by James Lenneman and Don Ross called everything must go. Everything, not everything. So, so this is essentially a book that, in, in what they call scientific metaphysics, they, um, they, their project is to is to reconstruct metaphysics as a discipline that is not in the business of doing first philosophy, like Aristotle, right? Not not of discovering stuff about the world, but it's in the business of making sense of what the sciences are doing. So, so how no individual science gives you the, the full picture. In, the, in, in, in Lenneman and Ross's idea, the function of metaphysics is, is, in fact, to put these things together and say, okay, what kind of picture of reality comes out of the different sciences once we put them together? And one of the things that they uh, discuss at length is this notion that it looks like fundamental physics is going in a direction where things, meaning particles, are eventually going to be gone, uh, particularly with the discovery of the of the Higgs boson, which of course is a particle, but it's the result. It's a particle that emerges of a field, out of a field. And so it looks like where physics is going is the ultimate nature of reality. As far as we can guess it is fields 
where there are relations between points on, in these fields, but the, but the points themselves are not things. And so in a sense, you have relations without relata. Sort of, right? Now, wow. <laughs> it's like, if that's the case, it, it, you know, it's, it, it is a if. It's a big if. But if that's the case, and that does seem to be consistent with directions in fundamental physics at the, at the moment, we need to rethink about what we mean by the fundamental ontology here, and we need to also rethink what we mean by, uh, you know, natural kinds. If it turns out that the ultimate nature of reality is relations between points in fields, I'm not sure what sense we can make of anything like a natural kind. Of course, the physicists do owe us an explanation of how the hell you get from relations between points on a field to, you know, the two of us talking to each other about relations yeah. on points in a field, and they have no clue. Yeah. They absolutely have no clue yeah. on how to do that. But it, may, it kind of makes you think. Yeah. Now, the other thing I was going to say in terms of a, a problem for being an anti-realist about natural kinds and, 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 and is maybe your response is going to be what you just said. But what I was going to say was it seems to me then that, that you're going to have a very difficult time avoiding – your realism turning into a kind of a Kantian noumenalism, right? Um, yeah, um, in, yeah. in other words, well, there aren't any natural kinds, or if there are, we can't discover what, we're not going to know what they are. And, and even if we could know what they are, we're in love or know that we know. Um, um, but there is a reality that exists independently of us. That starts to sound to me like a kind of a generic reality that yeah. then we have all the problems that you and I have discussed on other occasions that sort of Davidson raises and Quine raises and other raises about yeah. this problem with the notion of an undifferentiated generic reality that then our theories are supposed to sort of imprint themselves on or whatever. Right. Um, well, um, it so, to me like you think that fundamental physics is going to provide us with this. It's not, it's not going to be a generic reality. It's going to be something correct. like energy. Correct. Right? Exactly. It's not going to be a genetic reality. And whether it's fundamental physics is going to provide us with a lot the sort of whatever the ultimate answer is going to be, then I don't know. But what I do think is that we're getting closer and closer to that. We're getting better and better descriptions of, of ultimate reality. And so that ultimate reality is going to be in a certain ballpark, isn't going to be in certain other uh, directions. So the difference with Kant is that he would argue that you cannot say anything at all about the new right? Um, what I'm thinking, on the other hand, is more along the, the lines of Richard Gere. Uh, perspectivism, that what science is, is giving you is different perspectives that point ideally toward one, you know, ultimate realities out there. We may never actually get to somehow perceive or see or understand the ultimate reality as it actually is, but we, we, we get better and better ideas about how some of its characteristics through uh, the phenomena to which we do have access. I mean, I, I don't see any reason for being particularly optimistic, you know, about, oh, human beings are going to be able to figure out the ultimate foundation of reality. I think it's astounding that we got as far as we did already, considering our, you know, very limited brains that evolved uh, to solve very limited kind of uh, problems uh, of a particular species of, you know, social species of primates. It seems to me that we have already gone to, to incredible points. I see no reason, however, to just think that this is going to go on forever, that eventually we're going to get to some kind of ultimate understanding of reality. We may run into, I think we may already be running into insuperable empirical uh, obstacles. Yeah. You know, if it is true, I don't, as you know, I don't believe in post-empirical science. I think that's an oxymoron. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you have to start bringing extra empirical um, 
sort of criteria to decide between scientific theories. I don't think you're doing science anymore. I think at best you can, you can, and I don't mean this as an insult, you can characterize that as empirically informed metaphysics. So as far as I'm concerned, they're all different, you know, with due respect to my friend Sean Carroll, the cosmologist who just came out with a book claiming that uh, his, his favorite interpretation of quantum mechanics is the real one and whatever. I don't think so. Of course think, it is, right? <laughs> right, of course it is. Um, you just no, got to quote Feynman to him is what you need to do. Right? Yes. Now, <laughs> the fact that I don't think so is like, uh, who the hell are you? You're, you don't understand quantum mechanics. But there's a lot of other physicists who right, do understand right, quantum mechanics right, right. who are not convinced at all. So, so um, the point is, I don't think we're necessarily going to get there because we're already running into issues that seem to be insuperable. Again, never say never. So that's, that's obvious, always a caveat to have in mind. But if some of this, the, the critics of different interpretations of quantum mechanics are right, in some, if some of the critics of uh, string theory are right, uh, when they say, look, if there is any, in some cases, there is no experiment that anybody's been able to conceive that would tell us a difference between different interpretations of quantum mechanics. And in other cases, yes, there are conceivable experiments that you could do to test certain predictions of string theory, but they require more energy than, you know, multiple suns put together. And we were never going to get a kind of a particle accelerator that gets to that energy. Then for all effective purposes, we reach the end. That's it. You're not going to go further, right? I'm I'm happy to be shown wrong by the next generation of physicists, but it's very possible that we got as close to the noumena as we ever are going to get, and, and that's about it. And then yeah. we're going to say, okay, so we know a lot. We know a lot about particles. We know a lot about fields. We know a lot about, you know, empirical generalizations that we call laws, and that's about it. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, then, with that. well, then let's <laughs> do the last thing. And, and I actually, this is nice the way this went. A, I didn't predict it. I thought you were going to be more realist about natural kinds. Ah. But B, I think it's a nice way, there's now a nice way to reformulate what I was going to ask you in the area of biology and specifically with regards to sexes. Right. Um, Okay, so you're 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 skeptical about natural kinds, maybe a kind of anti-realist about natural kinds. We're not going to saddle you with anything, um, and so you're not going to want to distinguish sex between ge- between sex and gender on the ground that sexes are natural kinds um, right. and genders are not. So let me now rephrase the question in a different way, and that is. How are we going to make the distinction between things that are demonstrably obviously conventional and things that would appear not to be, right? So in other words, look, gender is obviously demonstrably conventional. Um, it has a lot to do with sociocultural consensuses of various sorts, and it has to do with the sort of the various social um, psychological expressive expectations that we assign to the different sexes, right? So yeah. gender is everything to do with sort of how we expect women and men to behave, how we expect them to dress, how we expect their personalities to, 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 right. to, to, to function, all of that. Um, um, sexes wouldn't seem to be like that, right? Yeah. Um, 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 whether or not you're male or female has a substantial, seems to me have a substantial biological, uh, yeah. substantial, uh, yeah. So if you don't want to make the distinction that, well, these are natural kinds and these are merely conventional ones, 
How do you want to paint that distinction? I mean, that goes down to what in biology is referred to as the gene-environment interaction problem or the the nature-nurture issue, right? Whenever we come up, especially when we come up against, uh, you know, human behaviors, which are obviously, every human behavior is influenced by culture, no matter, even including sexual behavior, like sexual preference. Yes, of course. course. Yeah. Um, So... In, the, in all those cases, it, the answer is always going to be, well, there is, you're going to find a, a biological component. And notice that I'm using the word biological here, not just genetic. It's, it's broader, right? So biological means genetic, sure, but it also means epigenetic, since now we know that there are lots of heritable epigenetic effects that are, that are due to uh, chemicals that are inherited from one generation to another that are not genes, that are, you know, things like, uh, methylating group, methylated groups, uh, chemical groups on top of genes that can be histone proteins com- that, are, that have a certain three-dimensional conformation and so on and so forth. So there's genes, there's epigenes, um, and then there is there's actually um, uh, biological effects that have to do with uh, uh, you know intrauterine effects, uh, responses to hormones, to, a, to the external environment, to stresses. We know that human development is sensitive to a number of things uh, that can happen very early on uh, during that development. So when I say biological, I don't mean just genetic, although biological includes genetic, includes a part of genetic, right? Now, there are certain cases where we can obviously say, no, no matter what you think about culture, this is all biological. Eye color. Unless you wear, you know, lenses that change your color, the color of your eyes. I'm sorry, that's entirely genetic. There's, there's no, you know, and we understand the genetic pretty well, genetics pretty well. We know how many genes are involved in this thing. We know the biochemical pathways. You know, that's pretty clear. Um, there's no societal impact. There's no, no behavioral impact on, on, on eye color. But that's a simple case. Then you start getting into more complex stuff like sex, well, sex, there certainly is, no matter what some non-biologically well-informed people would say, there certainly is a strong biological component. But there also, there's also much more variety than one might think. I think of sex as something that has two peaks, male and female, right? And we know, we're not, we understand the biological basis of that. The XY chromosome stuff, it's pretty well understood. But there are also exceptions. There are things in between that some of those exceptions are the result of genetic changes. There are people with, you know, two X chromosomes and one Y, for instance, or three and one, and one so on and so forth. Those are, are going to look different, uh, and they're going to look some kind of intermediate between the, the two standard sexes. There are also probably biological influences, meaning, you know, as I said, early developmental influences that can have an effect. But largely, sex is a result of you know, of biology and particularly genetics, or chromosomal, chromosomal arrangements. Um, when you start getting even further away from the straight biological into things like sexual preferences, for instance, before we even get to, to, to gender, then, then now the thing is much more interesting. I was, it was recent, uh, a paper that found a significant signal for a genetic basis for, gender, for uh, sexual preference, but no gay gene. Right? So there is no such a thing as a gay gene, meaning there's not a major or a small number of major genes that actually determine sexual preference. But as it turns out, there is a large number of small genes that all influence sexual preference. Right? So are we going to say that sexual preference is genetically determined? Well, we're going to say that there is a significant detectable, empirically detectable genetic influence. 
Yeah. Where the rest comes from of the variation in the population, we really don't know, right? Now, as far as gender is concerned, um, yeah, gender roles are definitely socially constructed, in at least in very large parts, right? Um, but then there are, uh, you know, transgender people who claim directly things like, say directly, very, lo- very vocally, things like, I, am, I feel I always felt trapped in the wrong body. Well, that sounds to me like there is something more than just convention going on or, the, or, or just, you know, uh, societal influences. Um, because certainly no society is pushing these people uh, to, to make that kind of statement. So if actually what, if that's what they're thinking, that's what they're feeling, does that, does that imply that there is, in fact, a biological uh, component even to uh, gender? Maybe. I don't know. It's an empirical question. Yeah, yeah. Um, but ultimately, the question is, why does all of this matter? Right. So, so the case is very is much simpler in the in the, when it comes to sexual preferences, right? Um, whether being gay or not, or heterosexual, or being you know fluid or anything, is a result of genetics, biology, uh, environment, culture, or a combination thereof. Why exactly does that matter? So long as the people in question do what they want to do without actually inflicting harm on other people, who cares? They should have the right to do whatever the hell they want to do. Yeah. Um, so to me, all these discussions about how much biology or genetics uh, uh, plays into these kinds of behaviors, it's kind of a red herring. So what if it turns out, for instance, that, that uh, being gay is entirely genetically determined? So now... Uh, people that think that there's something wrong with being gay are going to drop their objections and they're going to say, oh, well, sorry, we were wrong. I don't think that's going to happen. At the opposite extreme, so what if it turns out that it really is entirely to completely a choice of individuals with nothing about the genetics or nothing about the biology? Now what? Uh, am I going to say, oh, no, you really should, there's something objectionable about that choice? Like, no, I'm not. It's your choice. And so as long as you don't, uh, it doesn't matter causally where it comes from, so long as you're doing it in a way that does not actually, uh, you know, harm other people, fine. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, look, I, I've, I'm on the record saying over and over again that I think that the solution to all of these problems, uh, to the extent to which we, there are social problems, are, is a sort of traditional liberalism that's sort of bound by the harm principle, right? Um, Correct. Um, um, but the reason that these things come up is that increasingly – the the very categories are beginning to be challenged. So the same people who are inclined to say that sex is not a biological or natural characteristic, but rather a constructed one, are also now going on to say that homosexuality is not homosexuality, but rather homogenderality, right? So that now you have people with full male anatomy claiming yeah. to be lesbians, right? right. Um, um, and understandably, a lot of the lesbians are pretty upset, partly because um, they fought very hard to get laws put in place yeah. to protect people on the basis of their sexual orientation, right? right. Um, you have people who are full, full-bodied males now claiming to be women and wanting to be able to go into women's restrooms and women's changing rooms. And, um, and, and so, in other words, the reason why this is now becoming fraught is not because people are necessarily saying, oh, no, you shouldn't have any civil liberties. It's more that they're trying – because some people are trying to literally say – 
that there's no such thing as biological sex or that biological sex collapses into gender. And at least one way of trying to make that distinction is to say that, well, sex is a natural category and gender is a conventional one. But since we don't have access to that distinction because you don't want to go down the road of saying that sexes are natural kinds, I guess what I was trying to get is how should we then instead generally think about the difference between characteristics like um, having a male reproductive complement on the one hand, and on the other hand, characteristics like, you know, liking pink clothes and wanting to uh, uh, play with tea sets as opposed to trucks and, and so on and so forth. Right. So, again, I don't, I don't have a general answer to that question because that one is not that, – that's a, the question you're asking now is, is one of how should we relate in a society with people that makes these kinds of claims. It's not a question about, you know, what is the, the status of these claims from an ontological perspective. Um, as I said, I don't believe that there are biological categories in the sense that we were discussing earlier, but I certainly do believe that sex is largely determined by genetics. And anybody who tells you otherwise just doesn't understand or refuses to understand genetics. So you don't think we need to distinguish on the basis of nature versus convention? Um, That's what I was well, getting at. From a scientific perspective, we certainly do need to distinguish, with, but, but with the big caveat that it is a continuum and it's not you know, the, 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 those distinctions aren't going to be sharp. Now, from a legal, you know, and, and societal perspective, that's a very interesting question. Um, I mean, we, it could very well be that society is better served by just doing away with the category of uh, gender or even sex. I mean, why is it that when I, you know, uh, fill out certain forms, I have to say whether I'm male or female? Who cares? Why, why is that relevant? Isn't part of it, the reason for things like the census and stuff like that and crime statistics, um, sure. isn't there sort of a practical purpose? of? I mean, certainly with regard to um, uh, medical research and, and the devotion of resources, yes. we do want to sort of identify things that male-bodied people are prone to versus things that female-bodied people are. And if sure. we just mix them all together, that's going to make a mess out of our out of our medical data, right? Correct. But, but you shouldn't uh, require people to do so, right? So, so yeah, as a male, and I'm convinced that I'm, in fact, a male, um, uh, when I go to the doctor, I definitely answer that question. Yeah, I have problems that my wife's not going to have, right, and vice correct. versa. Exactly, right? exactly. Even statistically uh, speaking, right? there are some problems that you're going to have and she's never going to have and vice versa. But also there are other problems, like a heart attack, for instance, that it is more likely for certain categories, biological categories, where I use the word category in that colloquial yes, sense. In a non-natural kind sort Correct. of way, yes, yes. Or take race, right? So I'm actually an anti-realist about human race. Right, right. I don't believe, I think there is pretty good evidence to suggest that there is no such thing as a human race in the sense of human races, in the sense that biologists understand race as a, you know, deep phylogenetically divided, almost different, you know, subspecies kind of thing. There's no such thing. But that doesn't mean that, let's say, African people of African-American descent are not more likely or less likely to suffer from certain diseases, right. and therefore they better tell their doctor. Right. Or, or Ashkenazi or Jews. Or Ashkenazi Jews, yeah, et cetera, yeah, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so they better, it's in their own interest to tell their doctor that, you know, hey, this is my you know, ancestry, this is my lineage, because it does have statistical, certain statistical correlations uh, with certain health conditions. So all I'm saying is that... Um, we should not require that kind of self-identification precisely because it seems to be problematic for a sufficiently large number of people. But if people do want to self-identify, if people say, hey, when I, do, I go to the doctor, this is actually in my interest, uh, 
to tell the doctor, you know, whether I am X, Z, or Y, yeah, of course we should do it. But it's also in society's interest, is it not? I mean, to sort of have reliable data about the different things that tend to affect males and females, biologically speaking, it's in, it's in society's interest, right? It's not just the individual's interest, right? Um, I want to know sure. if sure. females are prone to certain, um, sure. and you know, will, but you will have that anyway, right? Because so, so when medical researchers do research on, you know, say heart attacks, they will ask their, their, their subjects, the pertinent information. And if yeah. you're not willing to give that information, you're not going to be part of the trial. Yeah. Uh, right. So, so we will have that sort of information. I'm a little more skeptical, I guess, that society needs to know that sort of stuff on things like the census. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, we, we're moving away from race, for instance, even in the census. So why not move away from other categories? So long as there are human beings that are you know, living in a particular area, um, you can assume that those human beings are going to be a certain statistical mix of what we call males, females, and other and others, and therefore you can act on the on, on that basis. Not like you're going to find a neighborhood where all of a sudden there's you know 99% males and 1% females. Like that would be really being, weird. I could see it being important in crime statistics. So I mean, let me give you an example. So there's been a recent few cases of this which have gotten a lot of notification. Where in Canada, where there are sort of peculiar laws regarding this, um, crimes committed by male-bodied people who identify women as women are being reported as crimes committed by women, right? right. Now, that, I think, strikes me as rather dangerous, right? I mean, and misleading. It's important to know, for yeah. example, that males, it seems to me, are, are wildly overrepresented in bi- violent crimes. Right. And if you start reporting male-bodied, self-identified women as women for the purpose of crime statistics, that's going to mess up your crime statistics, is it not? Sure, but... Um, in that case, I mean, I, I don't know the details, so I'm just talking off the top yeah, of the yeah. But in that, in that case, it seems to me that there's a difference between the self-reporting of the individual and the, the, the classification that the law enforcement agency is going to make for the purposes of the law enforcement agency. I mean, if it turns out, as you say, that uh, you know, knowing whether somebody is, is, is male body as opposed to female body as opposed to something else, then the law, the, the law enforcement agency can on their own decide, okay, w- this is the way we're going to keep records. Yeah. Yes. You can, so you can make a distinction between the subject self-reported X and the officer that filled out the paperwork uh, reported Y. And for internal purposes, we're going to use Y, not X. Yeah. Um, because we think it's more interesting, it's more relevant to our purposes, right? I mean, that's like, that seems like, I mean, I'm sure even that would be controversial because we live in a society where everything is controversial. Yeah. But so long as you're allowed to self-report and then whatever agency, you know, I mean, you would think it's the same with a doctor, right? If you self-report, if you go to a doctor's office and you're male-bodied and you self-report as a woman, you really think that the doctor is going to treat you as a woman? I don't think so. I mean, he's a bad doctor. That that guy would be a bad doctor, right? Yes. yes. So, right. So what the, what is the doctor going to do? The doctor is going to write down on his form, okay, self-report X, but body Y, therefore, since I'm talking about... But I'm you have an enlarged prostate, right? I mean, right. Exactly. So I'm, <laughs> since since my, my business is, my profession is about bodies and not about sociological uh, or behavioral attitudes, then I'm going to... Proceed yeah. on, on the basis of the body. 
Now you go to a psychologist. That's a that's different, a different issue. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Let me ask last question, and then I'll let you go. Um, the way you described the the sexes, you said the sort of two peaks, and then a sort of a bleeding. Right. Um, so an example I've sort of given, and when I've discussed this with people, is I've said, look, the statement "dogs are quadrupeds." Yeah. is true despite the fact that there are three-legged dogs, right? Um, um, so I guess what I want to ask and Some you, of those three-legged dogs are the result not just of accident, you know, having lost the genetic, genetic. But yeah. the, 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 the result of either genetics right. or development, yeah. Mm-hmm. So in the absence of natural kinds, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> how should we understand statements like dogs are quadrupeds or statements like, human beings come in two sexes, male and female, which I would say is true in the same way as dogs are quadrupeds, true right. despite there being exception. How should we understand those statements without recourse to natural kinds? So biologists tend to use the word biotype. So the biological type of a dog is a quadruped, even though there are exceptions. Right? Uh, the biological type of uh, you know, insects is sex, six legs, even though there are exceptions. Uh, and so on and so forth. The biological type of a vertebrate is that you do have a vertebral column, uh, and even though there are exceptions and so on and so forth, right? So a biotype, it will be the same as, as in what it's called a normal. But normal, of course, the problem we use in that word... It's meant descriptively. Correct, exactly. It's meant descriptively. I mean, the, the so-called belt curve, it's also called a normal curve. Um, not because it's prescriptive. It's not, it doesn't tell you that unless you fall in the middle of the curve, there's something You're wrong lousy. with you. <laughs> it, it just tells you that, you know, statistically speaking, uh, two standard deviations of the population are around that mean. And that's, that's it. So I wouldn't cancel using the word normal because, of course, it has all sorts of uh, a prescriptive connotation yeah. that people are going to freak out. You just have to qualify what you mean when you say it. Um, I guess what I'm asking you is, can one really cash out the idea of a normal member of a class without conceiving of the class as a, as a natural kind? Yeah, I think so, because, because so... So what norm, is it normal relative to if it's not a relative to a, a natural kind? Let me give an example. So, yeah, please. So these are all statistical descriptors, right? So if, you were, if we were in ancient Rome, a normal man would be about a little more than five feet tall. Because that was the situation in ancient Rome, right? Because, and not because of genetic changes, not like the genes have changed that much between then and now in the last dozen years. So it was nutritional? Most nutrition. Yeah, it was yeah. nutritional, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so a normal male of ancient, in ancient Rome would be about you know, five feet tall, and then there would be a distribution around, around that, that knee. But now, if we're talking about a normal male in, in North America in the 21st century, no. You, if you're five feet, you're definitely below the norm statistically speaking, right? So, so we can say that we can understand that these norms change over time and change in a continuous fashion due to the, a number of factors. Because when we say nutrition, um, it's a little bit misleading because it sounds like it's one factor. But nutrition is a large number of different factors, right? It depends on vitamins, proteins, uh, you know, the amount of calories you get, when you get them, you know, and so on and so forth. So it's actually not one factor. It's a, it's a multifactorial Situation. So I don't see anything problematic in saying, look, um, right now in this particular population, the statistical norm is X, descriptively. Um, but in, another, in a, in a some similar population in another part of the world, it may be different. And it's an empirical question. Uh, you know, even today, 
there are populations where the average male height is significantly lower and occasionally significantly higher than a North than the North American population. Now go to and you really think that, that you can apply that to normal and with respect to male and female with respect to sexes because in the case of like you know height of Romans, what there's an there's an environmental and thus a heavily social and cultural component, right? Having to do with agricultural technology and practices. Sure. and But that wouldn't seem to be the case with respect to whether you produce large or small gametes, right? I mean, that would seem to me to Correct. be, to be, to not be a matter that's affected by, by social considerations at all. So how do you cash out the, the statistical norm in that case without a, some appeal to a natural class? Is I guess what well, I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Well, again, it, what do you, now we go back to the beginning. So what do we mean by natural class? I mean, even those natural, even those so-called natural classes are the result of evolutionary processes, right? So they are, in fact, accidental in a sense. They are, they are, they are the result mm. of certain processes that could have gone easily yeah, yeah, in, a, yeah, in a different yeah. way. And sure enough, we do know of a number of biological species where there's, you know, the two sexes are reversed, for instance, uh, like in birds, or one or individual in, has both. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There are hermaphrodites. There are there are, there are fish that production. Yeah, yeah there yeah, are fish yeah. that change sex over their lifetime. So there is all sorts of stuff. Just so so what we see in human beings right now is the result of a particular historical sequence of events, and therefore you can say, look, for these particular species at this particular point in time, yeah, it's true that there is a bimodal distribution. That's what technical term is it's a bimodal distribution of sexes there's one peak over here one peak over there those are the two modes yeah and then there is a variation in between um and descriptively that's fine it doesn't say it doesn't have however any kind of prescriptive implication uh, yeah, it doesn't right, say that right, if right. you're in the middle you should really move to one side or the other it's like no yeah, if you're in the yeah. middle you're in the middle so yeah. long as there's nothing that bothers you in terms of physical health because one of the problem is that of course um the the chromosomal anomalies, and I use the term anomaly again, not in descriptively, yeah, but yeah. descriptively, as in statistically rare, right? Some of those situations don't just alter the, the sexual organs, they alter a bunch of other things, and they can result in health issues. So that actually, some of these people do have health issues that need to be treated. But, but again, that's an empirical question. So like, yeah. what kind of health issues do we have? How do we deal with them? It has really nothing to do as far as I'm concerned with sort of rights and, and access. And yeah, that sort of yeah. Stuff. Now, when you were saying, you know, what about people who want to walk into the bathrooms and et cetera, et cetera, fine. That's, as a society, we need to come up with some kind of a... That's a social, cultural, ethical social question. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's not going to be solved by calling no. things something else or, 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 no. or, 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 or not. We either agree that, you know what, fine. There's no need to do gender... Uh, you know, gendered uh, restrooms. I mean, now I'm, I'm walking, I've been walking even recently into a number of places. I was in a conference in Toronto where there are no distinctions between yeah. men. It wasn't a problem. There were stalls for men or self-described men, whatever it is, yeah. that are close, uh, you know, and then, and then uh, but they're in the same room, general room. Fine. And that's okay. Yeah, you know, I guess the, the, look, this this gets into a whole different territory. It has to do with what one reasonably fears. I, I, I will say that and you've raised a daughter too. Um, I think that I, I, I did like the idea that some of the intimate spaces she was going in were going to be sex segregated. Um, um, and I kind of understood, I kind of, I thought I was sufficiently 
right to fear male predation. <laughs> um, um, not to mention her sensibilities, because as you know, adolescents are very body kind. I have an, uh, frankly, I have another issue. When my daughter goes to the bathroom, she just takes too long. So I'd like to have a second bathroom for that reason. Fair but, enough. You know. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> um, Massimo, thank you so much. Uh, this was really interesting and went in all sorts of directions um, um, that I, I wouldn't have predicted, which is always a good thing. And um, so just before I let you go, do you have anything coming up that you want to say, mention uh, so that we can keep an eye out? Anything new coming out? Any well, new uh, the thing that is coming out is the one that we're doing together with, yes. uh, with Sky Clary. Uh, yes. It's this book on how to live a what is it called again? How to live a good life. How to live a good life. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a collection of, I think, 15 different essays by, by different people who not only are familiar with a particular philosophy of life or religion, uh, from Buddhism to Stoicism, from Epicureanism to Judaism and so on, uh, but actually are living those kinds of religions or philosophies of life. And so it's a kind of a exploration of different ways of living your life philosophically or religiously. And it's going to come out early next year. And uh, I'm sure we can do some interesting video dialogues. Yeah, absolutely. And, and anything if you're anything going on in anything going on in the Stoic world, you want to tell people about? In the Stoic world, there is a lot of stuff going on. As far as I am concerned, uh, I am now being contracted by the Great Courses Company to do uh, 24 lectures on Stoicism, and I'm working on them right now. Uh, and they they seem to think that this on is video a large market on video is it a on video? video? That's right. Yeah, they're going to be on video. Um, we're going to be taping them uh, during the summer of next year, and it's going to come out early 2021. Uh, it's really exciting because I've never done. How is it going to be like distributed? Like on Netflix or like on? As, uh, how they is it? Have to, yeah, they have their own, uh, um, you know, distribution channels. They they sell, they still sell DVDs, and they also have an app, of course, where you can watch videos, etc. But yes, they are in partnership with both Audible and Netflix. Uh, oh wow, that's really exciting! I'm, uh, that's going to be really interesting. Um, yeah. You must be excited yeah. about that. It's a challenge, I tell you, because each lecture is about uh, is based on a script of about four thousand words. That means that to do twenty four of them, it's ninety six thousand words. That's a fairly large size textbook, um, and so it's 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 challenging. And of course, you have to be sort of engaging with the public. I will be uh, presenting the lectures uh, on video on camera. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Are you going to be presenting to a live audience or doing it in studio? No, no it's in a studio. They have a really nice, uh, sophisticated sort of television studio where uh, if I want to talk about, let's say, uh, Zeno of Sidium and the Agora, they can make the Agora appear behind me. Uh, you know that sort of stuff. I, I I did I recorded a video course from um, from Missouri State years ago, and I did it in studio, and then was able to add all sorts of stuff in post production, which made it nice and graphical and sort of That's stuff. Right. That sounds terrific. Well, Massimo, thank you so much. We look forward to these upcoming projects, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. It was a pleasure as usual. All right, take care, my friend. Bye. Bye bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.